regulation after regulation. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. New government regulations, which were created to protect employees. The regulations are massive. $1.8 trillion. There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep it? Is this really the best we can do? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Practice Group Teleform conference call as today, January 5th, 2021. We discuss international reference pricing and negotiation, yes or no. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded for use as a podcast and will likely be transcribed. We're very pleased to welcome two experts to our call today uh, who have slightly different opinions on the matter at hand. Uh, we'll hear first from Dr. Wendell Primus. He's a senior policy advisor on budget and health issues in the office of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the former minority staff director in the Joint Economic Committee. We're also joined by return guest, Professor Adam Mossoff. He's a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, also a senior scholar at Hudson Institute and a visiting fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to get opening remarks from each for about 10 minutes or so, but as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions, so have those in mind for when we get to that portion of the program. With that, Dr. Primus, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, and thanks for the invitation to uh, talk to this audience for a few minutes about um, drug prices. Um, I had the privilege of working with the speaker and putting together HR3, which I'm going to primarily uh, describe. I think uh, the need for lower drug prices is clear. Um, there's about one in three Americans report not taking medication due to cost, and 42% of case cancer patients deplete their net worth in the first two years of treatment, in part due to drug prices. Um, and I think there's a lot of drug pricing increases that go on. Um, for example, between 2008 and 2015, prices for the most commonly used brand name drugs increased 164%. And uh, drug pricing is kind of unsustainable. Spending growth for prescription drugs is projected to generally accelerate between 2018 and 2027 by about 5.6% uh, per year. And the brand name specialty drugs, you know, are 30% of net spending under Medicare Part D and Medicaid, yet just 1% of prescriptions in each program. And I think in the future, we're going to see drugs coming to market that are primarily or predominantly these complex specialty drugs and gene therapies, which will further accelerate uh, this crisis. Spending has increased enormously. For most of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, it was well under $50 billion. And then it escalated very sharply during the late uh, 1990s and 2000s. So today we spend about uh, $340 billion or so on prescription drug expenditures. And what HR3 did was um, basically give the authority and the mandate and, and the tools 
for the secretary to negotiate drugs. Right now, the, the administration does not have the authority to do that. I actually think the things that uh, the, pre- the Trump administration put out in the last few days are illegal in some sense. They don't have the authority to do that. And really, it's up to Congress to give uh, the, le- the executive branch of government the, the ability to negotiate um, prices. And what we would do um, is, uh, I'm going to describe the negotiation part here in a moment. There was also in H.R. 3 in- inflationary caps that prevent um, price increases above inflation. We also uh, restructured the Part D program and imposed a 2000 out-of-pocket cap for seniors. And then um, the Congressional Budget Office, not yours truly, but the Congressional Budget Office said that uh, this negotiation uh, and the inflationary caps would save well over uh, $550 billion over the next 10 years. And then we made, we took those savings and made uh, historic investments in the Medicare program, adding vision, dental, and hearing benefits, and also uh, made investments in NIH and FDA. So the drug negotiation part really provided the secretary with the authority, the mandate, and the tools. And I would argue it's true negotiation. It is not price setting. And, um, And we're primarily aiming this at drugs that have no competition. I mean, they are in their uh, patent period, if you will. And uh, because of that, um, the drug manufacturers have an ability to command prices that are four times what uh, what uh, in other what's available in other countries. And so the secretary must negotiate basically a minimum of 25 drugs and then increasing that in the out years. And again, these are all drugs that are our highest spending drugs and drugs that are without competition. And um, the, the concept would be that the secretary would get confidential information from the drug manufacturer about the cost of developing the drug, um, you know, what sales are, uh, international sales, et cetera, and then um, would would negotiate with the drug manufacturer as to what a reasonable price would be, allowing the drug manufacturer to have a reasonable rate of return on the investment. Um, and I think many of these drugs, these brand name drugs, uh, have prevented competition coming into the market. They're actually, um, you know, one thing about the drug is. You know, that first drug costs a, a billion, $2 billion to uh, create. And then the second drug is basically dollars. I mean, it's a very interesting cost structure. Um, and clearly, the drug manufacturer has to recover their investment. Uh, but then the marginal cost, which we normally say price should equal marginal cost, becomes very, very um, inexpensive. And Right now, the drug manufacturer keeps competition away, and that's why we need the, why the secretary should have the ability to lower these prices 
uh, dramatically. Um, and the tools are if the drug manufacturer doesn't want to cooperate, uh, the secretary can level a what I'll call a non-compliance fee equal to 50, 60 percent of sales and a uh, ceiling price on negotiations that's equal to 1.2 times an average international price. Uh, there's transparency and um, that in a, in a nutshell is the new authority that is being given to the secretary and why the CBO says it would save $500 billion. This is very popular uh, with voters. Uh, the primary argument against the bill is that um, uh, this would hurt innovation. And um, we, I would argue that's not true. There's clear language in the bill that says the secretary must take into account rewarding, um, allowing a, 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 a rate of return on investment. Uh, even a conservative economist, Avic Roy, said it is almost certain that if there were fewer drugs developed, it would be the least innovative drugs that are abandoned. We think it would reduce incentives for investments in Me Too drugs. And um, I think uh, this bill explicitly rewards innovation, allows Americans to receive much lower prices, and then reinvest those savings back into the Medicare program. Or um, So actually, the House has passed this bill twice, once in H.R. 3 at the end of um, 2020, um, no, at the end of 2019, and then we passed it last summer and used the savings to improve the Affordable Care Act. So I will argue that this bill matched President Trump's rhetoric and that it's the only bill in Congress that actually reduces the prices of drugs. You know, Trump said when it comes to negotiate the cost of drugs, we're going to negotiate like crazy. He says we could save $300 billion a year. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, but, um, you know, CBO has said this will save lots of money. Um, and uh, I think uh, it is clearly something that Congress should be considering in the new term that is just beginning. And I know uh, my boss, the speaker, definitely wants to move this bill forward. Um, and we look uh, forward to um, working with the Biden administration uh, to help this bill become law and save Americans substantial amounts of money while rewarding innovation. And with that, I'll turn it over to Adam. Thank you. Uh, it, you know, it's a real pleasure to uh, be uh, discussing this issue with uh, Dr. Wendell Primus, um, and I'm really honored to uh, to have been invited to uh, participate in this uh, discussion of uh, the important issue of drug prices and uh, and and the patent system and how we uh, promote and incentivize innovation for medical care. Um, you know, it's it kind of um, it was heartening to hear Wendell say that you know that he uh, thought that there were aspects of uh, uh, the uh, the Trump uh, regulatory. Um, Actions here that are problematic, um, although the regulatory actions in substance um, that the Trump administration has undertaken and adopting.
mean, what it recalls the most favored nation status for, for drug pricing is, in substance, is essentially the same as the international reference pricing that is mandated in uh, Speaker Pelosi's Bill H.R. 3, and, and essentially is the same thing as what was Senator Bernie Sanders had proposed several years ago in, uh, in Senate Bill 102. Um, and so kind of in our topsy-turvy world these days, I'm, I'm here criticizing uh, the Trump administration, and, um, and Wendell, you are defending the substantive action of the Trump administration. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it's, a, it's a fun aspect of, uh, of this discussion. Um, as, as an academic, I'd like to first kind of, I'm going to uh, first, I'm going to do kind of a kind of funnel in my opening remarks, kind of talk uh, uh, broadly about what our patent system achieves for us. Uh, I am actually going to focus more on the um, on the uh, most favored nation uh, uh, regulations adopted by the Trump administration, but I will be talking about the substantive concerns about those um, about uh, importing price controls for U.S. drugs uh, prices um, in uh, in as purchased by Medicare and the U.S. healthcare market, um, and then looking forward to kind of getting into more of the details on the substance and process with Wendell uh, in the Q and A. All right, so let me start by just kind of framing the issue. Wendell met, talked a little bit about how the purpose of the patent system, of course just to reward innovation, and, you know, and, and he discussed the, the classic point about perfect competition being marginal cost equals marginal price, and so he framed, you know, the general policy as, you know, the trade-off between kind of rewarding innovation and the, and the cost of higher prices, and that is kind of the classic framing its conventional wisdom about our patent system, um, but it also misses an incredibly important uh, uh, perspective of the, of the patent system, and that is the patent system is actually a, not just a trade-off. It's a platform of innovation and, and provides incredible benefits for society. We have lost perspective on this, given the incredible innovations that have been inspired and made possible through the commercialization of, of, of new therapeutic treatments, vaccines, things that have made uh, conditions that have killed people for eons, hepatitis, diabetes, now manageable, treatable day-to-day -day conditions. And we've forgotten that uh, President Coolidge's uh, son, his teenage son, a 16-year-old son, died in 1924 from a blood infection after injuring his little toe playing tennis on the front lawn of the White House. I mean, that's less than a century ago. He got a staph infection, which is a completely treatable infection today. No one would die from that in the United States today. This is made possible by the reliable and effective patent rights that have been provided uh, to the innovators and the scientists and the companies that are researching new therapeutic treatments, and this has led to both the pharmaceutical innovation and revolutions in the 19th, 20th century and, of course, the biotech revolutions today. And, you know, the facts continually show, you know, that the, that the, the patent system isn't just about rewarding the initial R&D. It's important about... Uh, developing and deploying that in leading to commercialization and deployment of products and services in the healthcare market. Of course, we all know the facts of 10,000 molecules that are initially investigated by a pharmaceutical company leads ultimately to only five molecules that are approved for clinical trials by the FDA, of which those five, only one is ultimately approved for patients. And that's behind the, 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 some of the data that Wendell already mentioned, that the average R&D expenditures for each therapeutic drug that makes it to market is $2.6 billion and represents over 10 to 12 years of, of very hard tens of thousands of labor hours by scientists and researchers. You know, in 2019, pharmaceutical companies invested privately their funds of $124 billion in R&D, and this is what's leading to all of these incredible treatments we have today, uh, because they're, they, the products, the fruits of their inventive labors of these scientists and researchers have been historically secured by reliable and effective patent rights in the United States. And in fact, the response to COVID-19 demonstrates this. I mean, it, it, the, the response has been 
miraculous and unparalleled in human history. I mean, in May of 2020, there were 430 drugs and vaccines currently in development to investigate uh, treatment of COVID-19. As of today, there are now 788 drugs and vaccines currently in development. And of course, we all know that three vaccines have already been developed and approved for use in less than a year. This is a fountainhead of R&D and new treatments that, is, as I mentioned, is unparalleled in human history. And it was made possible by the existing technological knowledge, commercial resources, licensing and information sharing agreements that are all made possible through reliable and effective patent rights that have been secured to the pharmaceutical industry. And this is what's being threatened with price controls, because those patent rights aren't about just simply rewarding the initial R&D. It's about creating that technological information, entering into licensing agreements, entering into uh, all sorts of, of uh, innovative of supply chain developments to to get these products and new treatments in vaccines ultimately into the hands of consumers in the healthcare market. Um, and this is what's really concerning about the most favored nation regulations and the international uh, reference pricing uh, mandate in, uh, in Speaker Pelosi's bill. Um, and from the perspective of the regulations, right, this is largely, this is just regulatory discretion run riot. It's bad in legal process. It's bad in substance. And in terms of legal process, you know, the, the Trump administration hasn't followed the, Amer uh, the Administrative Procedure Act, and it's essentially rewriting um, the, uh, the statute by regulatory fiat. I mean, as a preliminary matter, right, the statute, the statutory provision that it's relying upon, um, it does not authorize these regulations. Of course, the, the statutory provision does authorize Medicare to test different pricing models, but testing different pricing models and exploring pricing different pricing options for how Medicare may pay for drugs is not the same thing as adopting full-scale nationwide new pricing regulations. Um, as a bit of an additional irony and uh, uh, to kind of continue the point about my topsy-turvy world uh, point that I started off by making, right? the Trump administration is actually re here relying on a provision of the Obamacare Act, which it's currently seeking to void as unconstitutional to justify these regulations that it just adopted uh, to employ price controls from other countries. Um, and as I mentioned, also, it's bad um, in, uh, as a matter of just administrative process. They have not followed the requirements of the APA. I believe this is what Wendell was referring to, um, because they've adopted essentially regulations by executive fiat. I mean, uh, President Trump issued his, ex uh, his executive order in August. Actually, he signed it in August. He didn't actually release or issue the order until much, much later. The regulations were issued shortly before Thanksgiving with an, with an intent to go into effect on January 1st. Um, so there was no following the standal, standard notice uh, uh, proposed rulemaking with notice and comment that's required by all uh, uh, agencies for adopting massive regulations of this sort. Um, and so in some, as I mentioned, this is really regulatory discretion run riot. It's arbitrary and capricious in both process and substance. I mean, this is rewriting a statute that was enacted by Congress um, by regulatory fiat. And by the way, I'm not saying this merely as a law professor and IP scholar. Three courts have now issued either temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions against the uh, against the most favored nation regulations that have been issued by the Trump administration. Um, initially, uh, the district court in Maryland on December 23rd issued a uh, TRO, um, but then the Northern District of California on December 28th issued a preliminary injunction, and then, then the Southern District of New York on December 30th issued another preliminary injunction. And this is because there's been a slew of lawsuits, not just from pharmaceutical companies. These are lawsuits from uh, patient advocacy groups, from doctors, from treatment centers, from, uh, from cancer research organizations, 
Republicans and things of the sort saying that this radically upsets uh, their ability to not just research and develop, but to provide treatment, to commercialize innovations uh, through the reliable and effective property rights system that has been created with the patents and has driven medical care innovation in this country for almost a century now. Now, uh, I do want to kind of uh, point out uh, in, uh, as a final matter, too, that, of course, the substance of the regulations, which reflects the same substance as in Senate, uh, Speaker Pelosi's bill that Wendell was mentioning, is bad as a policy matter, and it's bad for two reasons. As I mentioned, it, um, international pricing referencing, or most favored nation, is directly importing price controls from socialized medical care systems in other countries. Now, the prices are lower in other countries. Um, <clears throat> because those are nationalized healthcare systems. You have the government as the single purchaser and the single provider of all the healthcare. And so these countries impose price controls via regulatory fee. I mean, they talk, the bureaucrats there talk about negotiation, but if you don't accept the price of the government, the government offers at the end of the day, you're not allowed to sell your product in those countries. Um, now, the, now, what ultimately results from this is a classic example of a public choice problem. Uh, what economists refer to as cost shifting, of course. So, uh, pharmaceutical companies have to accept lower prices in these countries than what the market would normally support for creating radical new treatments for hepatitis, diabetes, and even COVID-19. Um, and therefore, the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies have to make up this price to, uh, this price system somewhere. The only one of the only countries left where they can freely price their drugs in a free in a, in a, in a healthcare market is the United States, and so they cost shift to the U.S. Uh, uh, patients. And of course, this is why President Trump rightly complained uh, in August when he uh, announced his executive order that other countries are quote freeloading unquote off of U.S. medical innovation. Um, he's right, but adopting the disease of the freeloading, the price controls, and is is not. The proper response uh, that violates the, the classic maxim: "Do no harm." We should adopt the cure, not the disease. Um, so, of course, price controls not a good a good solution um, when you're talking about concerns about uh, prices more generally. But also beyond just the concern about price controls and the impact that this has on um, innovation more generally, as we well know, you know, you're also importing weaker patent protections from these other countries. These other countries provide less reliable and effective property rights innovation than the United States does. The United States has long had the gold standard patent system recognized around the world because of its long secured cutting-edge discoveries consistently while the rest of the world boxed. Historically, for instance, the United States was the first country to recognize and secure process so the processes by which you might discover a new therapeutic treatment and the process by which you would apply that treatment. Um, we did this before any other country did in, in the world, including England. Um, and then, of course, in the modern era, the biotech revolution took place in the United States. We had a decade start on the rest of the world because thanks to a Supreme Court decision in 1980 called Chakrabarty, we said the patent system would protect the efforts of, of biotech researchers. The rest of the world balked and said no. And this is why the biotech revolution occurred in the United States and we have benefited from incredible treatments. Treatments now of viruses, the scourge of humanity for tens of thousands of years, are now treatable. Um, you know, we're all, uh, Wendell, you and I are old enough to remember when viruses were not treatable and that, we, and that, the, and that the treatment was juice and rest. Um, but now we can take pills. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the data supports this. The United States represents 5% of the world population. It produces 25% of the world economic output. And yet two-thirds, two-thirds of all new drugs are discovered or invented in the United States. Um, and this is because the, the, the fundamental principle that economists and historians have long recognized, that there is a strong correlation between reliable and effective property rights 
and patents and growing innovation economies and flourishing societies. In fact, this principle is true for all property rights, as U.S. courts have long recognized. Securing the fruits of labors of a farmer is the exact same as securing the fruits of the inventive labors of innovators in biotech research in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and it produces the same benefits for society um, in a flourishing free market. Um, and so, you know, a flourishing society, um, as represented, I think, in best by the unprecedented, miraculous response to COVID-19, I mean, of course, relies on, in part on many factors in society, rule of law, stable legal and political institutions, and things of the sort. But of course, a key and fundamental and essential factor is reliable and effective property rights and innovation. The ability to not just obtain protection for the fruits of one's labors, but to go into the market and to receive appropriate remuneration in the market through the, for, for those discoveries and what their worth is to the consumer. And this is exactly what is at risk by the price controls that are being imported by regulatory fiat by the Trump administration or would be adopted through legislation and Speaker Pelosi's H.R. 3 bill. So, thank you. Well, this is Dean. We've got a lot on the table. Thank you both for those opening remarks. Um, a lot of content here, uh, fair points of disagreement. Uh, I do want to open the floor to questions from the audience. I want to get some back and forth going, uh, but we can do both at the same time. Uh, th there is a lot of disagreement here and a lot of things to dig down on. One thing, uh, Dr. Primus, I want to give you a chance to respond uh, as you'd like, but I'd also be interested in uh, a point I think that uh, the Professor Mossoff is making, and that's this is a how much is this a U.S. versus industry versus you know U.S. government versus U.S. industry problem as opposed to a U.S. versus other country problem? The way other countries do business and then uh, the effects that has on on reimportation prices. Well, I think I mean I there's a lot that I agree with Adam about. I mean I think we both agree that what the Trump administration did here was they didn't have the authority to do what they did, but it, at the heart of it, H.R. 3 um, would have give, would give um, a Biden administration the ability to, to regulate drug prices, primarily prices where there is no competition. That's where, again, I think the problem is situated in about 400 drugs, and it and we do pay, this country, Trump is right, we do pay more of the cost of development uh, here than um, than other countries do, and there's no reason for that. Uh, I think if if HR three became the law of the land, other countries would have to change their um, their price setting of uh, dictums to some extent. Um, but the truth is, a lot of these drugs that we're talking about have been on the market for a very long time, and where they've recovered all of their cost of innovation. And um, and the prices should be trending down much closer to marginal cost, um, and and the American consumer ends up um, putting the bill, uh, and I think that should come to an end. One thing I'm interested in, uh, Professor Mossoff, let, let me first ask uh, Dr. Primus about the Me Too uh, phenomenon that you alluded to, which I haven't really focused on before, but I assume this means that. Um, because somebody can patent a drug that treats X, other companies are then driven to produce something that's very close to X so they can hone in on that market, and this is a bad consequence of the patent system. Is that is that the Me Too phenomenon you're talking about, Dr. Primus? Yeah, uh, yes, to a large extent. And, um, you know, I, I, I think innovation will still occur. Um, you know, innovation isn't uh, complete. 
solely driven by price. Um, you know, the vaccine development that has occurred in this country in response to COVID has been extraordinary. Um, and, you know, they're not assured of a, a given price necessarily. And, um, you know, it's, it's a drive to save human lives, et cetera. Uh, but, but I do think HR3 needs to be enacted because I do think um, uh, American drug companies are taking advantage of the patent system uh, and are charging prices that are not in line with, with their development costs. And Professor Mossoff, do you want to address the Me Too phenomenon? I haven't heard your thoughts on that before. Yeah, thank you. I've, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's one of uh, many criticisms that one hears uh, leveled at the at the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, and um, there, there's a sense in which yes, it occurs because if someone has a successful uh, therapeutic treatment, um, another company wants to make offer. A successful therapeutic treatment as well, in competition with that. I mean, this is not a, this is not unique to the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, there's Coke and there's Pepsi. There's Ford and General Motors. There's there's uh, you know one one has competing products in the, in in, uh, in all areas in all uh, of the economy in all sectors. And uh, one shouldn't be surprised uh, to discover that um, there is competing products in pharmaceutical industry. In fact, this is exactly what our patent system is intended to promote. This is what the patent system drives in a part through disclosure. Um, you know, this is one of the uh, key kind of benefits of the patent system is that it, it eliminates trade secrecy, uh, which was the only way that you could protect innovation before patents, the modern patent systems were developed, um, by saying you get a property right, a protectable property right that you uh, that you will, that you can then go into the marketplace and obtain further venture capital financing, enter into commercial agreements and things of the sort. Um, but you have to disclose your invention so that other people can read it and figure out ways to uh, build off of it, innovate further, and and even compete with you. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Primus Wendell's kind of—I'm sorry—I uh, uh, defer all, usually to people's titles, but I'm, uh, but this is a fun discussion, so I'm trying to keep it on a first-name basis. Wendell, you, you know, we seem to at the same time saying, well, there's Me Too drugs, so there's that 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 so there's unnecessary competition, but yet there's not competition. Um, and so, well, there's competition, and uh, and then there is the appropriate commercial development and innovation that we would hope to have. I also want to just push back a little bit on the. Um, on the marginal cost uh, should equal marginal pricing. You know, I, I often uh, believe, and I've heard others say this as well, that it, you know, it's a mistake. Uh, it was a mistake of classical economists to refer to uh, you know, this model that they created as perfect competition, as something that we aspire to, because it, it can't be. As many economists have pointed out, um, if marginal cost equals marginal price, then you have no money left over to reinvest in new products, new services. It doesn't. You don't have a research and development co company. You don't have 129 billion dollars to invest in new innovation. Um, if marginal cost equals marginal pricing, and so many economists across the board have have talked about how the importance of intellectual property more generally, not just in the biopharmaceutical sector, but in the high tech sector and in the manufacturing industry, is that it facilitates what they call innovation. 
destination market, the creation of new markets, new ways of companies to commercialize and produce and uh, new values that benefit society. And this is exactly what is occurring by the pharmaceutical industry. This is why we have, as I mentioned, incredible treatments and diseases that were death sentences even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, are now manageable day-to-day conditions. And why COVID-19, as bad as it is um, and has been, it will not be a repeat of the 1918 Spanish flu incident with tens of millions of people around the world dying because of the ability of the pharmaceutical industry who have created all of these incredible commercial mechanisms through the value chain in producing new products and services that benefit people in in the healthcare markets. I want to give you a chance to respond to that, Dr. Primus, but also in doing that, you mentioned that HR3, the CBO, has indicated a cost savings of $550 billion. Can you say more about where that comes from? Does that come out of the bottom line of pharmaceuticals in a way that will have less money for research and development, or does that come from uh, other countries? Or how, where, where does that $550 billion come from? Well, you could go to their website and, and look at the at the long 29-page report that CBO put out. Um, but yes, it comes out of uh, 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 drug companies here, primarily in the U.S. I think there would be, uh, you know, once you introduce a law of this kind, there would be ramifications for other countries uh, and the like. But this would be a great savings to American consumers and to American businesses. And, um, and it would also increase wages to some extent uh, because health costs would decline. I mean, this is not an insignificant uh, change. So, and I think um, it, 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 it also is evidence of the fact that United States is paying and the United States consumers are paying too much for some drugs. And again, I'm not talking about all 8,000 drugs or whatever there are. This is primarily concentrated in a few brand name specialty drugs where companies have kept competition from entering their market. And, um, and uh, again, it's a, it's a negotiation. It's not, you know, to some extent it's, uh, it, it's, it's trying to preserve innovation uh, for a very unique product, uh, but where the companies are taking advantage of uh, of the patent system uh, and and other things that they're doing to discourage other companies from creating generics um, um, when when the patent runs out. Um, so I think this HR three makes a lot of sense. And um, and it, it should become the law of the land. And um, you know, I expect drug manufacturers are going to argue that it hurts innovation. That will be the primary argument um, against the bill. Uh, but I don't think there's any doubt in this country that American consumers are paying a lot more for drugs here than in other price than other places in the world. And there's no reason for that. Very good. We've got a great discussion going. We've got uh, our audience uh, queuing up. Now let's check in with our first audience member. Uh, hi, um, I'm Tom Lillis. I'm actually calling from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Um, it seems we all agree that the need to stop the free rider problem. But uh, isn't the problem of property rights and importing price control solved 
by just saying to the drug makers, if you don't want your U.S. pricing depressed, don't sell to countries with controlled drug prices. That way you'd relieve the free rider problem and cause the countries to face the appropriate costs of their their uh, drugs. Uh, what do you think? Who wants to take a shot at that? I think that's a pretty severe uh measure i mean to to deny uh i mean a drug manufacturer would have to say i, I you know my drug does a lot of good in your country it would um solve this uh sickness and, and now i'm not going to sell to you um i think um i think that's putting the drug company in an uh in in an untenable situation isn't it saying you're not paying our price. You're not paying for the drug, so we're not selling it to you. Yeah, I would agree with Wendell on this uh, on his on his response um, in 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 two respects. One is is that I mean the I mean the pharmaceutical companies are developing these drugs to treat people. I mean they're they're, they're providing a service there uh, to us as in the same way that an automobile company provides a service by selling their cars to you and you're in a you know and Microsoft and Apple provide a service by selling their computer products to you and um and they want to provide that service that's why they develop it they want to produce the values and they want to uh to to have consumers purchase their products um and so it, you know it 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 it, it would they, it just goes it, it would it, be a tremendous problem for them to say, well, we developed this product, but we're going to let your company, country suffer, and the people there suffer for that. They don't want that to happen. Um, and, more, and more fundamentally, there's an economic point, too, which is that, you know, they, they you know, there, there are two factors to property rights. Property rights serve two factors, and I was just pushing back against the, just the focus on the reward point, because property rights in all contexts serve that. So for a farmer who spends a year, you know, uh, husbanding cops, right, that's some cost that, that the farmer has to recover and takes into account when he, when he or she sells the, the fruits of those labors in the marketplace, which is also what's facilitated by the property rights. So it, it, it incentivizes the creation, and then it facilitates the distribution of that creation through a market uh, a mechanism, and which, which is what is the key to flourishing societies. And um, and so for the pharmaceutical company to, you know, to receive at least some money on their investment so they can continue to pay their researchers and pay the ongoing R&D expenditures that they're, that they're incurring for ongoing development of uh, future medications and therapeutic treatments, that is still something that is, uh, that is valuable to them. And that, so they're, they're, they're taking that for what they can. Um, you know, it's the same reason that anyone in any price controlled uh, context will still, you know, sell some of the products and services. You just will sell a lot less, and, and there will be a lot fewer of them. And what ultimately replaces the market, if if the market is not determining the prices, is things like political pull and connections and and uh, um, and other types of uh, political mechanisms and 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 influences we've seen in in all sorts of countries, from Venezuela to 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 Russia to uh, to many other types of status regimes. Uh, this is Dean. It seems the caller might be going towards uh, t t in the direction of a point I think Professor Mossoff made earlier about maybe a coercive relationship between U.S. pharmaceutical companies and foreign governments uh, and the fact that they can extract those prices uh, because of their bargaining power. Do, do you see another way to um, adjust th that bargaining power? Um, and this might be beyond the scope of this call, so you can defer if you'd like to, but I'd be interested if our experts have any uh, thoughts on that. Okay. Hi, thank you. This is Sean Callahan. My question was actually 
exactly what the, the first questioner's question was, and not quite sure why uh, Wendell uh, disagreed with it. it. It seemed like the point of the question is that neither uh, of the subject proposals uh, is as a price control because neither uh, uh, requires or prohibits uh, economic activity at any price. Um, so I want to kind of come at it a different way. Uh, imagine that there were no uh, there were no uh, socialist or, or command economies on the globe. So these drugs were being sold only in uh, free markets. Now imagine what the price would be for, unless uh, limited to the new drugs. Uh, imagine what the price would be for the new drugs. It would be a price that is in, at which the marginal cost outweighs the marginal benefit for all the, the consumers. Now compare that price with the price that would prevail under either of the subject proposals. It seems to me the point of the first question was that the price would be the same because the uh, behavior in the world as it is now of the countries with the, the, the command pricing would adjust. Right, so that's my question. Um, wouldn't it, it, wouldn't the idealized price, wouldn't the actual prevailing price match the idealized price under both of these proposals? Because the behavior of the freeloading countries with command pricing would have to adjust. I mean, we don't have to sell our best drugs for twenty cents to Venezuela. Companies don't have to do that. Uh, so they, but if, if they want the, if they want, if if the Companies have to choose between the attractive uh, 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 price in the U.S. market versus 20 cents in the Venezuelan market. Uh, they make a decision. Venezuela responds rationally, and the price adjusts in both markets. Right? No, I, I, I guess I would answer the question this. Let's take a drug like the FMA drug, a, a miracle cure that um, you know babies have this defect. Um, and they're gone they're, uh, by age two. Now they have this drug that allows them, as I understand it, to have normal life expectancy. The price tag is 2.1 million. There's no competition for that drug. It's a, it's a one of a kind. And because of our patent systems, you know, and, and correctly, no one can manufacture a different kind of drug uh, for a while. And so I would imagine that they would charge the same price in every country, you know, maybe somewhat lower prices in, in less developed countries. But, but then the, the question is, they take, I would argue they can take advantage of our patent system and charge prices that are way out, are outlandish relative to the development costs that that drug took. Um, so, and, um, you know, I don't know for sure what the price should be in the United States for that drug. That's why H.R. 3 says there should be, you know, the, the secretary collects information and, and has to hold that information confidential and then, uh, and then determine what uh, a reasonable price is um, for a drug like that. Does that help answer your question? Uh, well, it's sort of. I mean, I, I this is a kind of another question I had. I don't want to uh, go down the rabbit hole, but 
What, what I'm trying to do is, is say that we have two mechanisms. One is the Trump uh, EO, and, and the other is your bill. Your bill seems to contemplate a little more active uh, inquiry into what, uh, what a price ought to be. The Trump EO seems less so. I'm trying to take a, a bigger picture approach and say, uh, you know, let's assume we're all, you know, classical, uh, um, you know, Friedman-esque uh, uh, economists. And let's just compare the, the working of the, of, of the market under that regime with that assumptions with what would actually prevail under either of these proposals. Uh, and if <clears throat> excuse me, if they're the same, then that seems to be a real problem for conservatives who oppose the changes. And that's why I mentioned earlier, I wasn't really sure why you, you, uh, you were opposing the first uh, questioner's proposal, because if, if, if you can, if you can, Clip the, the conservative opposition to the the eat of these proposals. It seems like you've made made great strides. So I'd like to I'd like to interject and um, and make a point. I think that is strikes at the core of the assumptions in both of the questions that have been raised, which is that there there is a conflation here between governments and, mar and, and, and companies that is just um, that uh, that sometimes that sometimes classical economists make that other economists make that it's just it's just, it's it's what philosophers refer to as a category mistake. Governments do not act rationally like companies do. If a company fails to provide a product or service, or doesn't you know meet new costs and and charge more than marginal costs so that it can invest in new products and services like Apple has done and like any and Microsoft and 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 Pfizer and all these successful innovative companies over the years, it goes out of business. Governments don't go out of business. Because they're not, they're not in, they're not in the market to provide a product or service. Governments set rules backed by the coercive power of the state, and so both the, the, the uh, President Trump's most favored nation regulation and the international pricing reference import price controls, explicit price controls from other countries that are not set according to quote rational market conditions unquote because they don't have to be. Right? I mean, the, in France, it's the Economic Committee of Healthcare Products, which sets the drug prices. In Canada, it's the Panded Medicine Prices Review Board. And there's no reason for those, those, those uh, agencies to respond to anything we do any more than, than we should respond to anything they do other, uh, as, uh, as an economic matter. Um, because they're, they're, they have they have control in their in, in their in their countries, and it is a price control because they're setting a price, because they get to set the price, because they control whether the drug is even sold in the country legally or not. Um, so this is a this is substantively both the IPI and the MFN IPI legislation and the MFN regulations substantively function the same way. They import explicit price controls. That have been adopted in socialized healthcare systems in other countries. I, I mean, we, we we shouldn't we shouldn't cover our eyes to that fact. Um, and I and and then to go back to Dean's question, I was I was just taking me a little time to unmute my phone because I was I wanted to actually answer it. I I do think that there is appropriate responses that the that we could take, but the responses are not to import the bad laws and price controls of other countries. The responses for our government to respond as a government to other governments. Companies can't respond to other governments. 
in, in, in the same way that a government can respond to other governments. And this becomes a matter of then international law and international relations, where the U.S. government can, should say, look, you are taking advantage of our citizens' rights and, our comp- and, 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 uh, and the products and services that are created by our innovators, and you need to stop, or we will hold you accountable government to government. That's the res- proper response. The improper response is to say, hey, you're taking advantage and exploiting our citizens and stealing the fruits of their labors and 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 engaging in, in classic public choice mechanics by uh, by promoting cost shifting to other people who you're not accountable to. And therefore, um, we're, we're going to respond to that by adopting the same things you're doing, <laughs> which is what the MFN regulations do and what the IPI does. There's not a negotiation here. This is this is importing price controls. Pure and simple. We still have two audience questions uh, left. Before we go to the next one, I, I want to see if Dr. Primus wants to respond to that last point uh, from Professor Mossoff about government to government versus uh, business to government. Or should we move on, Prof- uh, Dr. Mo- uh, Dr. Primus? Yeah, why don't you move on? Very good. As I mentioned, two questions left, five minutes. I'm going to ask the callers to be as concise as possible. Um, I wanted to follow up with Adam and Wendell real quick about um, I do think the government-to-government relations is extremely important because of market participation. But one of the things I was wanting to clarify was the most favored nations, um, are they part of the G8 or the G20 summits that the United States um, does, you know, international laws with and international negotiations? And my question is, um, are these countries part of the United States that will allow us to share our patent information through a drug control coalition of countries or a convention um, so that we could be a market participant in an international drug coalition, but we would also have our own patent protection um, so that we wouldn't lose our um, scientists, our research, and our our very important um, drug development here and innovation here in our country. And... um, could we negotiate a better outcome through a better collaboration with favored nations to share innovation, price control, and market participation? Because I agree with Wendell. My dad um, recently passed away last year, and he had a drug that was six to $800 a month for one um, medication that he took for AFib, and um, it was crippling for our family financially. Um, of course, you know, we did it because we – wanted to prolong his life, um, but in the end, it, it didn't prolong his life that much longer. Um, so I think that, yes, you would see wages go up. I agree with Wendell on that. I also agree with Adam about the government to government. Governments are not like companies. They they do have to have a shared coalition. And I think that the United States is is, is in a position where we could perhaps negotiate a better collaboration of, of drugs. Thank you. Either of our experts want to respond? Well, I'll, um, I'll just respond on the, on the patent points, and maybe I'll, I'll leave the details of the, uh, of the international pricing, uh, reference pricing to uh, international pricing index to, uh, to Wendell. Um, I mean, there, there, the underlying issue here, right, is, of course, is that, um, is that patent laws, like all laws, apply only domestically. Um, and so the U.S. patent law only protects U.S. innovators in, in, within the United States. And, of course, um, 
U.S. innovators obtain, ha, obtain, a pat, obtain patents in other countries, and there's also there's international treaties um, that allow for and try to harmonize some of the patent protections between various countries um, that have uh, that have been facilitated through you know there's recognition that these are worldwide developments and products and services, um, but you know they, but other countries. Uh, don't have to follow us. This is this is kind of the classic problem in international relations, and you know is that you know governments are sovereign entities, and you know we can ask another government, and we can say, look, it's in your interest to to adopt the same types of protections that our types of, that we provide to our citizens, and they can either agree with us or disagree with us. Um, you know, we broke uh, you know from England because we disagreed with the types of protections that England was 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 providing or not providing more precisely, um, and. You know, and this is kind of a story of human history more generally. Um, you know, the United States was the first country that was founded on a, the moral ideal of recognizing the protection of life, liberty, and property. It was the very first country to include as part of the right of property intellectual property. Um, it's the first country to include the protection of intellectual property in its constitution and authorize the government to protect patents and copyrights. Um, and and this is why we, we took the lead. In fact, the U.S. patent system became a model for other countries in the 19th century in, in, in some aspects of the um, so I mentioned I said the U.S. has long been the gold standard patent system, but if other countries choose to exploit or take advantage or steal or, or uh, the work of our innovators, then that's a position that our government has to take as, uh, to say we need now to defend our, our, our citizens. Um, in fact, uh, President Trump has been one of the uh, uh, few presidents in, mo in the modern history to take very seriously the theft of, of, of the work of U.S. innovators uh, by countries like China and other and other countries uh, very seriously, which is what makes it a little odd that he is then turning around at the very end of his administration and doing the exact opposite by adopting those same policies that, in that implement theft of the work of U.S. innovators. Well, the yeah, the only thing I would add is um, – and I agree with Adam. In fact, we agreed here a lot on uh, uh, on uh, the fact that I think um, the Trump administration shouldn't be doing this by their MFN uh, regulation. But, you know, we also have an insurance system. I mean, you know, I talked about this MSA drug that had a price tag of $2.1 You know, if you had a baby born with that condition, you know, who can afford 2.1 million? I mean, we afford that because we have an insurance system and uh, or a Medicaid system that says, um, you know, if you have this life-saving drug available to you, um, you know, we want the 400 babies that are born with that condition all to receive that medicine uh, or that drug. Um, and, uh, and we spread the cost out over uh, many other individuals. So I think you have to think about these drug prices in that context, because when you have this unique service uh, and this unique drug that doesn't have competition, you know, the, 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 the drug manufacturer can sell that, pro can sell that product and command that price here in this country. Uh, and I think those prices are too high. And HR three, I think, deals with it in a in a way um, that uh, is just and protects innovation, but also lowers prices to consumers. We've got about three questions. Uh, I'm sorry, three minutes left. Um, 
and I promised our, our experts we would wrap up by 1 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, I want to give each of you a chance to express a final thought, um, and let's go in the same order that we did to open. Um, and again, three minutes left, but uh, Dr. Primus, final thought? Well, I enjoyed this discussion. I hope the audience did as well. And, uh, and you know, I think the, the question about how um, innovation should be held in a in a multi-country situation isn't clear to me. Uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to working some of this out uh, internationally, uh, but I do think HR3 makes a lot of sense here in this country. Um, I think our drug prices are, are too high, um, and until you have a generic competition, prices remain too high, and um, HR3 is, um, is a much more careful explanation of how the price ought to be set relative to the Trump um, uh, regulation. Um, so I, uh, I'll stand by my case here that HR3 is a necessary addition uh, to our system of drug pricing, and, um, and it ought to be enacted. Professor Mossoff, a final thought. Thank you. Well, I really uh, enjoyed this uh, this discussion with uh, with Wendell. Um, <clears throat> it was a pleasure to find the points of agree agreement in addition to our kind of expected points of uh, disagreement. But I think that we really uh, cashed out very nicely uh, bo both fac uh, facets of uh, of those points of contact. And um, you know, and I just want to uh, pick up on a point made by just Wendell and his closing remarks, which is that you know, all too often the the, the, the patent system uh, becomes kind of an easy go to, for lack of a better term phrase whipping boy for, you know, concerns about prices and things of the sort. But, you know, as was brought up by Wendell's remarks, you know, there, there's the patent system is nestled within a broader system of regulation of insurance companies and insurance laws and and and, um, and the existence of government-provided uh, medical services in this country and things of that sort. And we always have to kind of take that into account. Remember that, that you know, as, in fact, as we're seeing now, the, the, the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine is being held up by various regulations and controls on who on who can receive the initial uh, the initial do, uh, uh, doses of the vaccine um, and so there's actually some concerns that the vac some of the files of the vaccine are going to go bad now um, and this is uh, just another example similar to price controls of how government interference with markets actually undermine and, uh, and uh, the ability of people to have access to the very life-saving drugs that people have been talking about, those incredible uh, life-saving new products and services, uh, you know, were unthought, uh, unheard of and, uh, and unthinkable even 10, 15, 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. And they've been made possible by reliable and effective property rights protections through intellectual property systems like our patent system. And we should always remember that, and we should respect that, and not go down the the, the path of quick and easy fixes through government controls like price controls or other types of regulations, which will only undermine and destroy the ability of, of the innovators in the pharmaceutical industry to get these incredible treatments into the hands of consumers, as opposed as in similar ways that we've seen price controls and regulations undermine the ability of, the, of producers to get products and services in the hands of people in other ways, whether it be uh, food or basic services and automobiles and things of that sort, like we saw in Venezuela um, in the past several years, a prosperous country that has returned back to destitution uh, due to statist controls. So 
thank you for this great discussion. I really appreciated it. Well, I, I join in thanking both of you uh, on my own behalf and on behalf of the Federal Society and the audience. And I want to thank the audience for dialing in and for your questions as well. Uh, a reminder to the audience, check our website, check your emails for the next scheduled Teleform conference call. But until that next call, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G-Project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 